that the way they assumed their product or website to be used is often drastically different from how it's actually used. The most common one is people think that readers or visitors will diligently read the copy on your landing page or your page. And when you actually watch recordings of folks on your site, that basically never happens. Stories or didn't happen. A big welcome to our marketing fam. Prepare to turn the f- up. Hey, Phil. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining. Um, the first question I'd love to ask everybody here so people have more of a background is how did you get into marketing and also consumer psychology side of marketing as well? Uh, that's a good question. Yeah, they're kind of joint. So um, I uh, went to university in the UK and decided to study marketing at university. Why I just decided to study marketing, I'm still not 100% sure. I think I just liked advertising. <laughs> I just thought, oh, I like ads and I've seen ads on TV. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that. Very, very loose. I think I just didn't want to do economics or like hard data business. Anyway, I chose that. University, like it is in the US, is very expensive in the UK. So I spent 50 grand in total after four years worth of university, but was pretty certain that that financial investment set me up nicely for a good career in marketing. Got my first job in a city called Brighton in the UK at a tech company, SaaS company called Brandwatch, and was there for, for a couple of years and until I, until I realized that this 50 grand that I'd spent on my marketing degree didn't quite have the ROI that I had expected. So I was started to do tasks and I was doing bits of marketing that I just wasn't particularly happy with. I found myself copying what competitors were doing, using a cookie cutter approach to marketing activities, like just taking what I was doing previously and trying to tweak it in different ways. But I didn't have any good frameworks, principles to follow that I could apply to my marketing to really get results or improve my results. I found myself at a bit bit of a dead end, which was very frustrating after spending so much time and effort and money on a marketing degree. And it was around that time that I stumbled across the sort of world of of behavior science. And I'd obviously heard a little bit about it in the past, studied it a little bit, but it wasn't until I read Richard Schotten's Choice Factory, which is a brilliant book, around consumer psychology and behavior science, that it really opened my eyes about how an understanding of how consumers make decisions can be applied to marketing to have predictable results and massively improve your marketing. And from there, I went on to read Influence by Cialadini and hey, this whole host of books around the subject and sort of fell in love with it, started to apply behavior science and consumer psychology to my work, saw massive results and a massive improvement in my work and got inspired to try more and more. And then sort of fast forward a few years, decided that, hey, I really like podcasts and I couldn't find a podcast that was solely dedicated towards behavior science and consumer psychology. So I thought, hey, let's just have a crack at doing that myself. And that's where Nudge Podcast came from. So I'm the host of of Nudge Podcast, where we interview behavior science experts, uh, pioneers, people who are applying behavior science in their business. Done 72 episodes of all sorts of people like Richard Shotton, but also Bruce Daisley and Nia Eel and heaps of other smart folk like that. And on the show, I'm basically interviewing these experts to discover how they've taken behavior science biases and nudges and applied them to marketing and some of the wins that they've got. 
And yeah, that's how that's been my marketing career. My, I now work at Hotjar. Many of your listeners may know it's a website analytics tool, and I'm senior product marketer there. And I spend a lot of my time at Hotjar applying behavior science principles to to what we do at Hotjar as well. So yeah, how's that, Daniel? That's my career. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I wanted to go into the consumer psychology side of it because I think a lot of people need to learn more about that side of marketing. But I want to start like, what is a nudge? Like, why is your podcast called Nudge? <laughs> That's a really good question. So it's named after the brilliant book, which is also Nudge by Richard Fowler and Cass Sunstein. And Nudge as well is 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 now just a broader term for behavior change. It's actually a broad term for quite a slight behavior change. So I often on the podcast refer to nudges and just talk about nudges as if they relate to you know, using behavior science in any sort of field, but that's not quite right because the specific definition of a nudge is a very subtle change you make to say the design of something to change the behavior of of someone. And Richard Fowler and Cass Sunstein sort of nicely get into this in their book. But since their book, which was seminal, the term nudge is now just used very widely to, to really talk about the application of behavior science. So another organization that uses is known by nudging is the nudge unit, uh, which how they're informally known in the UK government. So the UK government has a, a unit of behavior scientists known as the nudge unit, which are trying to tweak people's behavior to try and get them to do things like pay their taxes on time or not speed when they're going down a motorway. And that agency is now independent and worldwide. So there's similar agencies within America, but all around the world. They're known as the nudge unit as well. So nudge is, is a small change you make to have a subtle change in behavior, but it's a general term, which is why I picked it for the podcast to describe using behavior science to shift decisions. Yeah, I love that. And I want to go into like some of these like techniques people use to move consumer behavior. If you can mm -hmm. give me a couple examples of like what should people be thinking about like let's say on the website when thinking about consumer behavior to change behavior yeah i mean so in terms of the biases that we all have there's a lot so we spent hundreds of years understanding how the, the brain works and there are a lot of biases that you and i have which dictate our behavior and some of them are very well known to marketers so there's the bias around social proof now, everybody knows social proof. Social proof is the idea that you follow the actions of others. So if you're walking down the street and you see a group of people looking into a shop window, you will look into that shop window as well. It's impossible to not do that. And obviously, a lot of marketers know about this bias because they do things like put that thousands of people have tried this product. Would you like to try it as well on their website? But social proof isn't just a best practice. It isn't just something we should do because... It's in a textbook or, or it's something that people advise us to. There's real science behind why social proof works. And there's some fantastic examples of it working. Um, one of my favorite comes from Richard Chotton in his book, The Choice Factory, which I've referenced. And it's a really simple application of, of social proof. He went to a pub in London and asked the pub owner, what's your best selling beer? And the pub owner pointed to, to one of the beers. And Richard Chotton said, I want to test social proof to see if I can increase your sales. And all he did is he put a sign on the beer that was best-selling saying, this is this week's best-selling beer. Very simple application. And compared the sales on the week before and after to see if there was any change. Following the addition of that sign, sales of that beer went up 2.5 times. 
simply just by having a simple nudge in there to say, you know, other people pick the spirits best selling, so other people like it. And the, what's really interesting about that as well is total beer sales in the pub didn't drop. So they all remain the same, but beer, people just bought more of that beer simply because we have a bias to follow the actions of other people. So social proof is a really powerful one, but there's heaps of others as well. So there's one which I think is really pertinent to anybody who's doing SaaS marketing or, or uh, freemium marketing, which is the endowment effect. And the endowment effect is the idea that we are inclined to finish tasks that we've already begun. So if you're if you if you're trying to log off after a hard day at work, you'll struggle to log off if you're halfway through an email. You really want to get that email done. Um, whereas if you haven't started that email, whatever, you can close the laptop and go. And this was discovered in a brilliant study from 2006 by a researcher called Nunes who uh, researched loyalty cards. And what this researcher did in their study is they had two different sets of loyalty cards, which they gave to two different sets of participants. There were loyalty cards to get, uh, I think it was a free coffee, you know, the loyalty cards you would get if you went to your local uh, cafe. Now, one of the cards had seven stamps that they needed to collect before they get, got the three coffee, free coffee. And the other card had nine stamps to collect before getting the free coffee. However, when the barista handed over the nine stamp card, they stamped in the two first stamps of the, of the loyalty card and handed it over there. So technically, these two cards and these two variants are identical. Both sets of consumers have to buy seven coffees before getting a free coffee. However, obviously, one set of consumers has already begun this task, right? They're, they're already midway through the task because they had two stamps on their loyalty card. Conventional wisdom, conventional economics would suggest that there should be no difference in the behavior of these two groups because they have the identical amount of things they need to do. But nudge theory and behavior science showcases that that's not the case. Those participants who got the stamped the card with two stamps already plugged in, they were 82% more likely to go and actually fill out the whole card, continue to buy coffees and get that free coffee on their, on their, on their seventh or ninth, however you look at it. And that's really important for us to know as marketers, because if that can be, if that can be that successful in a, in a cafe loyalty card, think about how that can be applied to sign up flows on your website. And this is why you will have seen in recent years that sign-up flows really make it trying to appear that you're midway through a task when you've just put in your email address, only a few more steps to complete and stuff like that. And the endowment effect has, has been used and rinsed and repeated over a number of different apps to try and get people to sign up. But that all just comes back from that study back in 2006, which showcased the, the power of it. I could go into to more and more. Um, yeah, let's go to some more, but I, I have a, a question for you is being a product marketer and dealing with product and all that great stuff. How much do you lean on making a psychological change than a product change? Because a lot of people say, okay, we need to make the product 10x better to get more people doing stuff. And then there's also what Uber did with their product, which wasn't a 10x better product. They just did a psychological thing to have a map that people thought like, oh, I can get a, I know when my taxi's coming and anywhere yeah. we're going. So how much do you use that like psychological effect to improve the product, not only just build a new feature and stuff like that? The dream scenario is the two work hand in hand, right? Mm -hmm. The dream scenario is that you've got a product squad who's 
aware of these biases and is building to, to improve them. Now, I should really make the point here that that should always be ethical and like you shouldn't be building something to get people addicted to a product in a bad way. I think Uber is a great example of that because they've built something that actually removes the fear and uncertainty of a, of a taxi ride rather than building something which potentially makes it worse. So the dream is that you have you have both working side and side. But I can, as a product marketer, I can I can definitely empathize with a lot of product marketers who are listening who who will know that that's not the case, right? Like you can't change your product managers if they maybe don't have that point of view. And what I've discovered, at least through being a product marketer over the last six, seven, eight years, is that you even if your product isn't built with a psychological bias in mind. It doesn't mean that you can't apply some of this behavior science to improve adoption. It definitely doesn't mean that you can't apply some of this behavior science to improve acquisition as well. So you can still leverage all of these nudges and these principles, even if it's not been something that's built from the ground up from your product. But that said, obviously, the best way to do it would be to have the two working hand in hand. Yeah, I love that. And what are some product biases you've used like in the past like to in an ethical way, influence people to do more actions, more signups, more. I know social proof obviously is a huge one, but what are some other ones that have you used in the past? Yeah, there's probably so social proof is a is a nudge which is used widely by marketers. I think some of the other ones that I think are crucial for product marketers and marketers in general to be aware of is stuff like well, we'll start with distinctiveness. So a really crucial thing that you need to be aware of if you're promoting a product is, is making sure it's distinct, making sure it stands out. And this, this is all around acquiring users, right? So this comes back to a study which is done over 100 years ago by Hedwig von Resteroff. It's called the von Resteroff effect. And in her study, she gave participants lists of words or letters to remember and see just to see how many they would remember. Turns out it's not very many. <laughs> like we, our memory is not great. But within that list, she had a series of numbers as well, just to see if they would be any more likely to be remembered. And it turns out they were. And the idea is that because they are distinct, those items were more memorable. Fast forward 100 years, this has been replicated again by Richard Shoston in his book, The Choice Factory. He gave participants a list of brands to try and remember, brands from all one category. So let's say it's the automotive category, so a bunch of different automotive brands. And then try to see how many people would remember. It's not that many. Our memory is not that good. But within that list, he would occasionally drop a brand from a different category, say fast food. And when he did that, the unique brand, the distinct brand, stood out as four times more likely to be remembered. And that's the sort of science of distinctiveness. Now, as a product marketer, this is an interesting one because I think a lot of product marketers, but also marketers in general, really suffer from this need and this this sort of desire to to really copy competitors and to do things that other competitors are doing so if you look at um sports sponsorship you used to play i uh, think football right and you mm -hmm. used to yeah before or still are sorry if I'm, I'm not sure but no um, definitely not anymore not, <laughs> not anymore i don't know <laughs> recreational but like 
sports sponsorship is a great example of brands failing to be distinct. What you'll see in sports sponsorship is it is always the same type of companies that sponsor these events. So in the UK with, with soccer or football sponsorship, it's beer brands. You know, Heineken sponsored the Champions League, Carlin sponsored the League Cup, uh, Carlsberg sponsored the English national team, Budweiser sponsored the FA Cup. You have these same brands competing in the same place. Same with gambling firms as well, all tend to compete in the same place. And yet we know for distinctiveness, that standing out pays pays off. And you see this as well with, with a lot of website design. If you go to SaaS websites and Hotjar is in some part critical of this as well, and we're, we're working on it. But if you go to four, five, six different SaaS websites, you will see a lot of similarity. You'll usually see copy on the left-hand side of the page, title, subheader, CTA, and then usually, not always, but usually some sort of cartoon figure pointing at a uh, image of the product and some sort of animation to the right-hand side. Lots of SaaS websites appear to to sort of copy one another. And yeah, it's not just the case in product marketing, it's the case everywhere within marketing. I think the best example of this is if you look at watch faces on watch ads. So in, if you look at watch ads in a magazine, glossy magazine or on the TV, they all look kind of similar anyway. They've all got some influencer wearing the watch, looking wistfully off into the into their foreground. But they they they're so intent on copying each other, these brands, that they even set the time on the watch to the exact same time. All of the different brands do this. So every single watch is set to around 10 minutes past 10, just because nobody wants to buck the trend. And you know, you might just say, oh, this is all old-fashioned companies who would do that. No modern-day company would do it, but Apple, with their Apple Watch, do the exact same thing. But standing out really pays. It really pays off to stand out and to try something different. I've got, you know, there's examples where I've seen this within sort of website design, but also just really common examples. I mentioned the nudge unit within the UK government earlier. They ran some tests to try and get people to pay their taxes on time. The way they do that is to send a letter through your letterbox. And the best way that they found to encourage people to pay their tax on time was to just make that letter distinct, to just put a post-it note on it and say, this is urgent. And that saved something like four million in late tax fees, saves the taxpayer four million pounds in late tax fees. So heaps of examples of how distinctiveness works. And I would urge a lot of marketers to be wary of copying competitors because all the science suggests that that's not a particularly smart thing to do. We all know that the marketing technology landscape is insane. There are thousands of tools to choose from, and it could be really daunting to pick the right one. Well, we partnered with our friends over at Maga.io to get you the book that makes it easier. Build cool shit. It's honestly the most complete guide to building a tech stack today, and we can't recommend it enough. Just text millennial to 415-915-9011. That's millennial to 415-915-9011 to get your copy today. It's kind of funny because there is a psychological thing going on with marketers that they have to be the same. And I think it's partly that social proof and like fitting in and wanting to be the same as everybody. And also the risk aversion of like, if I try something new, like I talked to Rory Sullivan, like yeah, a couple of, and he's, he said he, I mean, a lot of people don't do things because the upside as a marketer is not as 
high as like the downside of making a mistake. So the logical choice, nobody gets, he always says, nobody gets fired for a logical choice because like everybody's doing it. So like, why would they fire? Cause all these great people are doing it. And if you do something different, like for example, a, a stockbroker, if he puts money in the stock, he has more upside to gain from it going off than what a marketer has from making a big campaign because they don't, they're not metriced on like, if this campaign goes off, I'm going to make X mm. amount more money. Mm. So the risk aversion is like a partly like something that, because like marketers used to back in the day have commission based like salaries and stuff like that. So they had more incentive to be like out of the box and stuff like that. But where now that, which is not to marketers fault, but a lot of people are risk averse mm. when it comes to making decisions. And like, obviously sameness is like, you have to be like willing to take the risk and put yourself out there to be able to do something which has some downside too. Like you could totally flop against other brands if you didn't do that, but there's also a huge upside where you could stand down. I think, yeah, you're bang on and risk aversion is a huge part of it. And I think Rory Sutherland is, is leading the way and trying to convince people that there's another way. I think one of the best things that Rory's done and others in the field is, you know, started to build a vocabulary that we can use to talk about these ideas. Like if I just said to you, oh, we should change our website because if it's different, more people will remember it. You'll be like, what the hell are you on about? Like, shut up. Mm. It sounds dumb. But now we're a lot of marketers are investing time and effort to learn about the science behind why people make decisions and are, are actually talking about that within a marketing concept, um, con um, content. Um, and I think that's, that's having a big effect because if you're able to justify why we should test this thing out with a study that was repeated or an example. It's a lot easier to, to suggest an idea than, than just saying, oh, I saw another company do this or, oh, I, I read this thing about a letter containing a post-it note, so we should try this on a website. It's much harder to do. So yeah, building, I think another thing is that marketers are starting to build a bit of a vocabulary, a good vocabulary upon which they can talk about these ideas. Yeah, I love that. Rory and the, all the other consumer psychologists and and i just like how it also comes down to which is like using consumer psychology internally to like how do you sell that idea to like your upper management to be able to try these things like what words are you using like if you say the way you just said it someone might say like um yeah don't go back and do your your regular job but if you use different wordage like bring in a study use social proof all that good stuff like you can convince internal stakeholders to make a change too um which is a big which is a huge marketing skill too i think like is the best marketers know how to like sell their ideas not only externally but internally as well yeah i think someone told me that Product marketing is just convincing other people to do things. <laughs> you can apply the same to marketing to some extent, right? It's a lot of convincing. Since you work at a company like Hotjar, which like looks at how people behave on a website, like what are some like actions that are like pretty like you wouldn't think that people do on websites like consumers, but they do all the time. Yeah, the biggest eye-opening moment that most of our customers have. We spend a lot of time talking to customers at Hotjar. Hotjar is really easy to install as well. You know, you just go to the site, 
grab the tracking code you can get installed within sort of five minutes that sounds like a plug but it, it does just mean that a lot of people have a an aha moment very quickly i think one million websites use use hotjar and one of the biggest things that people are surprised about and it changes based on the type of website you have or the industry you're in but this happens pretty repeatedly is as a website builder and that might be as a marketer or a designer or a product manager if you're building a, a SaaS product which is posted on a website you spend a lot of time looking and thinking about the thing you have built and you probably have quite a lot of biases towards the thing you have built because you you have spent so much time building it and when you use the product or you show the product to someone else you use it in a very specific way a website whatever it might be and you know there are also biases with with doing the same thing when you when you do a one-on-one -on -one sort of user interview as well but what we find when people use hotjar is that they find that the way they assumed their product or website to be used is often drastically different from how it's actually used. The most common one is people think that readers or visitors will diligently read the copy on your landing page or your page. And when you actually watch recordings of folks on your site, that basically never happens. Like you'll rarely ever see someone diligently reading line by line what's on your page. They'll skirt around, they'll go back and forth, they'll click on images that aren't clickable, they'll try and open something that they shouldn't open. And it's a lot more chaotic than we might imagine. So that is consistently one of the things that we see people get surprised about when they look at actual website usage is that it's way more chaotic than you'd expect. And actually doing something like changing a small amount of copy on a page could have quite a small difference and it's negligible compared to actually maybe doing something a bit more grand which is instead of having a paragraph of text putting in a gif or a video or an image that might explain what they're trying to get across at a, at a much quicker pace so yeah the main thing i'd say is that people do not act the way we expect them to act yeah i i mean that's the whole part of why there's companies competing, right? If, pe if people were predictable, there would be huge, more people, more monopolies and stuff like that. Because if human behavior was so predictable, you could sell whatever, but humans aren't predictable. So it's, it's harder to sell, but it's also interesting about websites now. I wanna get your take on this is like how buyers are buying now the website is more of a place to get information fast because the research is done beforehand where like a website like 10 years ago was a place to like actually go and do the research up front. Like they, there wasn't as many resources out there right now. I can go research any amount and I get content about 10 different things, find out review sites, ask my friends, like, is a product good? There's so much options out there. But so like a website, people don't have time to just go, they, they've already done their research before they come to your website. Do you see that a lot? Like a lot of people already know that they're interested in this product before they even come to the website. Like some people oh, yeah. who type in hotjar.com, like obviously <laughs> heard it from somewhere. Like, like if they type yeah. in hotjar, they've obviously heard it from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like I can filter recordings of people on, on our site who have just signed up to spend like a, a thousand pounds a month with us. And I'll be like, oh, should I, what, what a magical bit of content converted them? Like, what magical thing did we do? 
And more often than not, these people are just people who have zoomed through the site. Like they clicked homepage, they clicked product tour, scrolled for about three images, signed up. And then, you know, further down the line, they've ended up buying the actual product. And I think that showcases the game changer in SaaS is freemium. And that, again, leverages two really powerful nudges. So there are two nudges that, that freemium leverages. One is the IKEA effect, which was discovered by Dan Ariely and, and Michael Norton, when they give people IKEA furniture that is pre-built and then they give another set of people IKEA furniture that you have to build yourself once they built it. They then ask them, how much do you value this thing for? How much would you sell it for? And people who have spent time and effort building the IKEA furniture valued it far higher, which, which is illogical, to be honest, because the pre-built stuff was built by sort of expert IKEA builders, so it should have been higher quality. But we value things that, that we create. That's the IKEA effect. And freemium plays off that, because if we build a profile or start to enter data into the product we might be using, like at Clearbit, for example, if you, if you start to look at, enter some of your data and see it being enriched by that, that content, you, you'll start to feel the IKEA effect having an effect and you'll, you'll start to feel a bit of ownership towards that product and that will make you far more likely to sign up. And then the other one that, that Freemium really leverages is the power of, of free. So again, this was discovered by Dan Ariely. He talks about it brilliantly in his book, Predictably Irrational. Um, and the power of free, the study that revealed the power of free was when Dan Ariely offered his students two types of chocolates. One, I think, was like a Ferrero Rocher, a high-value chocolate, a chocolate that you would like. And he said, this costs 25 cents. And the other was... I think it was a Hershey Kiss or something, a low-value chocolate. My American chocolate knowledge isn't very good, but high, like really nice chocolate on one side and really not very nice chocolate on the other side. The nice chocolate, he said, that costs 25 cents. The not-so-nice chocolate, he kept, said, costs one cent. So it's very cheap. And then he asked people which one they want. And like 75% of people went for the nice chocolate. They didn't mind that it cost 25 times more. It was, uh, you know, whatever. It's like, it's nicer. I'll have that one. And then for the next set of students, he changed it slightly by one cent. He made the nice chocolate cheaper by one cent, which is now cost 24 cents. And he made the not very nice chocolate cheaper by one cent. So it now costs zero cents. It's now free. But they both just dropped down by the same amount, one cent. And he asked students, which one would you prefer now? And the overwhelming amount preferred the free one. So now 80% of students wanted the free chocolate. And nothing's really changed. Like it's just gone down by one cent and yet behavior has changed dramatically because we're massively attracted towards things that are free. My favorite example of this comes from, I think Richard Chataway talks about it in his book, Behavioral Business. And it's around Amazon Prime. So Amazon Prime was a success in every single country it launched except France. And they were like, why is it not being successful in France? And they realized France was the only place where with Amazon Prime, you didn't get free delivery. You got delivery that cost you one cent. It's basically free. It's basically free. It's one cent. Like you're already spending, I don't know, 10 euros. What's one cent? But it wasn't completely free. It cost one cent. And Amazon Prime did not take off at all. It saw hardly any retention rates. People didn't buy it. It wasn't until... They leveraged the power of free, made the thing free that people actually started to, to subscribe to it. And it took off like other countries. And so SaaS products today, to your point, Daniel, like the very best ones leverage freemium products because freemium products can massively trump any type of content you put on your site. Because even if you have the most engaging product video or copy that is so persuasive that, you know, 
if you read it, you instantly want it. That might that still might not be as powerful as the power of free and the IKEA effect, which take hold once you've invested a bit of time into a product. So I think that's a, a vital thing for for product marketers working on a website to consider. Yeah, I love those two. And I it's funny that you said the the IKEA effect because I was watching a real estate like show yesterday and you see it all the time with like people who invest a lot of time like putting stuff in their house and like making it all pretty and stuff like that how the value in their head the perceived value of the house is like two to three x more than the value of like what the market price is because they've put their blood sweat and tears to like oh i've designed the roofs these certain ways or stuff like that. It was pretty, it's pretty interesting. Now that I think about what you just said, like it's so obvious that they like, they've had this like ownership, like they felt like attached to all these projects that they've done at their house. And they feel like since they did it, it's worth so much more. If someone else did it, like they wouldn't have perceived it as, as high as what they think they did it. Um, Yeah. And it sounds illogical and it sounds like something that, wouldn't work if you were to talk about it with your boss in a in a business context but once you understand the science behind it you understand that it that it makes a hell a hell of a lot of sense that's just the ikea effect taking hold and you know the exact same thing has been found with all sorts of things super bowl tickets if you ask somebody who has a super bowl ticket how much do you value that at they'll say thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Whereas if you ask somebody who doesn't have one, who's the same level of fan, who has gone to as many games, who cares just as much, they won't value it anywhere near as highly. And that's that's the IKEA effect kicking in. Yeah, I love that. I love that a lot because I, f- I feel like it's... Also, I think it's a little bit of like the effect where the study with the phone booths of how like people inherently like when they own something like they or like parking spots, like you feel like you have to be on the phone longer because you inherently don't want to lose that time or that spot. And that's why it's kind of like that FOMO effect of like putting stuff like limited time and limited, like these this many spots on your website because people don't like losing like something that they're ready garden like they don't want to like Absolutely. lose that spa there's a couple of nudges at play there there's the sunk cost fallacy which is the idea that if you invested time and money into something you'll really struggle to give it up and a great example of this is the is the um copy that amazon prime displays when you try and desubscribe from prime rather than saying oh you'll lose access to all these brilliant features that we have they'll just say oh you've saved 313 pounds in uh, delivery since you since you subscribed um you'll you'll like lose access to all those savings and that triggers the the sunk cost bias there so that's that's a big one at play and then the other one you mentioned around sort of limiting seats on a webinar or access to a website is that's scarcity having a having an effect in there and scarcity is an incredibly powerful bias incredibly powerful how much it affects us and there is endless examples of scarcity in marketing. But I think my favorite, actually, again, this comes from a book called Behavior Business by Richard Chataway. And in the book, he shares an example of KFC Australia. KFC Australia had a a deal for chips. It was chips for a dollar. 
And they wanted to promote this deal to everybody in Australia via Facebook ads. But they wanted to come up with the very best bit of copy to promote this deal, chips for a dollar. And so they got, you know, Yum Yum, who own KFC, spent billions each year on, on marketing. So they have a lot of very talented copywriters within their business and they pay a lot of agencies who are very talented copywriters. And they got them all to come up with as many good examples or as many good piece, bits of copy that they could to promote these chips. They came up with over 70 different examples. So stuff like the kernel's never been so generous. Um, they taste brilliant from Brisbane to Perth. They're like all these wacky different bits of copy. They tested all of them on Facebook, all 70 examples of the chips for a dollar. And the bit of copy which was most successful, which beat every other variant, was simple scarcity. It simply said, chips for a dollar, limited to four per customer. And that was the most powerful bit of copy. That was the best bit, best thing that converted as many, as many users as possible, got people to click on that, on that ad. And I think, yeah, scarcity is 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 incredibly powerful so powerful that it'll often beat some of the most creative copywriting you come up with it's it's, it's crazy cuz like you said like i think a powerful copywriter like understands like all these biases and not just because i think they play hand in hand where you have to you have to understand what moves people to be able to write good copy like some people are really good and talented with words like and they write some crazy stuff that i i couldn't imagine and i'm like oh that's so smart but i feel like like smart sometimes doesn't equate to a purchase being made and also one point i wanted to make back to a point you made earlier about all those brands advertising in the same space and how like you you only remember i think it came from like positioning and said like you only remember like the number one in like a category like it's just mm-hmm. like top of the top of mind and i think one thing that also stuck out to me is like a way to be different is not only like maybe you do the same thing but like you've built a brand and that would separate you. Like, it doesn't have to always be like you do. I mean, this may, may take longer. Like, it takes longer to do this. But it doesn't always have to be, oh, I have such a creative idea that's so much different. But, like, the beer that has a better brand, like, out of every one of them will probably get more sales advertising in that space than someone who who has an average like an uh, average brand beer going to advertise in that space like i think like that is some way to stick out out of the same this is the brand and community that you built outside of it and i think that's an interesting way to think about it too is like you don't always sometimes that can be your differentiator it's like being different by building something that can't be replicated absolutely and I should clarify, like differentiation being different. That's the goal the Hedring von Restorff effect is not just about like go go and be different, go and make pink beer. That will get you so that's not it. It's about being distinct. And really being distinct is about standing out in somebody's mind. And you can do that, just you don't have to do that by being different. You just have to do that. And a lot of that can come down to to branding. The only fear I have when when I think about branding as a marketer is Personally, I feel sometimes a bit demotivated when I hear about it because I think, how can I, as, an, as a marketing individual, if I'm working at, say, Heineken, 
influence the the brand like a brand is an association of memories which is built up over over years and years and years and years and years and it can be really can sometimes be a bit demotivating if you think oh i'm just going to build the brand because it's difficult to know what to where to sort of work on that and i think one of the ways i've motivated myself as a marketer is to to see how you can build on a brand by applying elements of consumer psychology and like a an interesting example just because we were mentioning beer is is heineken like they did a study where they looked at their slogan i think their slogan is i can't even remember at the moment open your world i think it's heineken's slogan not like not massively <laughs> memorable and they trialed a few different things and basically discovered that distinctiveness really pays off in america they their slogan and they trialed like 10 different versions the example that actually stood out and was recalled the most was something like beer that makes milwaukee jealous i don't even understand what that means as a non-american but i can see why that's so memorable and distinct and they found that was like 85% more likely to be recalled than open your world and i think that's a nice way to think about how marketers can can have an impact you know you can add to your brand by applying a bit of behavior psychology and discovering this stuff unfortunately heineken didn't use that as their slogan they still got open your world and they didn't apply it because it is so risky to to change things and to not just go with the grain and follow the competitors but yeah i i think you also made a great point is like what differentness and distinctness is different of what size of company you are like for like someone who is a well-known brand like like they're different they could do something pretty same because they have a brand where like if you're like not a well-known brand you have to be using like something to stand out because you haven't built that rapport over a long period of time which is a great thing to think about how you how you said that like i think that's a great point that i think being a new brand you have to take those type of risks to stand out otherwise you're you're not going to be anything different than the those big time brands that have been around for years and years yeah there's a good example i mean in the in europe we've got easyjet who are an airline which just plastered their airline in this horrible shade of orange i think in the states similar low cost airlines which have got livery which is like very distinct colors and stand out and you shouldn't do that if you are british airways or united like you sh- you just because that has worked for those brands because they're new does not mean you should copy it like if you byron sharps work around how brands go brands grow when you build mental associations over years and years and years and if british airways were to change their logo to bright orange just because easyjet found some success in that that would be a complete failure like the whole point is if you are an existing brand you should find ways to build on the brand that you've already created and find ways to to double down on it and i think that's that's the important thing and you shouldn't hear this stuff about hedrick von restoff and be like oh we should just change our our plane to bright orange you should find smarter ways to apply it that that leverages the brand assets that you already have yeah and i also think brand is reputation but i think the the big thing also you're saying is like i think we're going back to a place where you have to be more creative to stand out because data privacy laws are getting in the facts so you're going to have less access to how you could target people so if you're targeting a broader amount of people you have to find ways to stand out and it's not going to be through your targeting anymore which was a very separated factor back at, like for the last 10 years it has to be hmm. 
back in the day where people did creative marketing to stand out because they had to do that because they didn't have as like their ad was their targeting. Mm. So I think we're going back to a day where creativity is a is what brands need to start doing, which I, I love that. I have one last question, which I like to ask people on here is what are most marketers you think doing wrong today, in your opinion? In my opinion, what are most marketers doing wrong today? I think most marketers when they're, and this was me as well, when you're given a problem to solve, one of the first things you do to look for inspiration is to just have a look at how your competitors are trying to solve that problem, is to look at your peers within the industry. And I think that's a surefire way to make your brand undistinct and to make your your product stink and to make your marketing bland and unimaginable. I think marketers who look at people within their field and industry peers for examples only end up creating bland marketing that doesn't stand out and has has led to a real sea of sameness in a lot of the industries that you look in. I think marketers who when they're faced with a problem, come at it from a behavioral science angle, maybe an illogical angle like Rory Sutherland suggests, and try and figure out how to solve that problem, not from a company point of view, but from a consumer point of view. Like how could a consumer, how will a consumer be affected by the thing we create to solve this problem? They'll end up creating something much, much better. One of my sort of favorite nudges is, is anchoring. Anchoring is the idea that you change your decision based on the reference point that you're given. And the most famous example of this is, is the diamond company, De Beers. Back in the 1930s, nobody bought diamond engagement rings. Only 10% of engagement rings were diamond. It just wasn't something that people did. It wasn't a habit. And they came up with an ad which said something along the lines of, how can you make like... A, a diamond lasts forever. Or no, what, what was it? Let me, I've got it here somewhere. That's it. How can you make two months' salary last forever by a diamond engagement ring? There's such smart anchoring in there, which is you're suggesting that an engagement ring should cost two months' salary. And it never previously did. Nobody ever spent that much money on an engagement ring before. People just spent a couple of hundred bucks. But De Beers were the first to suggest, well, how can you make two months' salary last forever? Spend two months on your engagement ring. And following that, following that campaign, which, by the way, has been running for over 100, like over 80 years now, they've been using a variation on how can you make X amount of your month's salary last forever by a diamond engagement ring. You know, everybody now buys diamond engagement rings. And there's no way that the beers would have had that success by copying their competitors or doing something similar to what their competitors are doing, or even following the marketing textbook and talking about product benefits. The only way they got that engagement was by applying a bit of behavior science, by looking at how people make decisions and thinking, well, diamond wedding rings, diamond engagement ring costs a lot. We need to use an anchor to try and make that price seem more appealing. So they use the anchor of two months salary. So yeah, that would be my suggestion. Yeah, I love that. And it's funny you said that anchoring because I think I was, again, I was talking to Rory and he was talking about, I forgot what king it was or prince. They were, it was two vegetables and they were selling like one vegetable, like everybody was just eating one vegetable and one vegetable was becoming like, it was potatoes that were like becoming like nobody would eat it because it was disgusting. It was known as like the like a poor man's not even poor people would eat it. 
and they did a simple thing of like they made it like the prince royal garden and they had a security guard who was like not even guarding it be the one guarding the 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 potatoes so everybody would come and steal it so it became like this like they they changed like the perception of what a potato was it went from like this poor disgusting thing to like this royal like vegetable and it started becoming like the thing that everybody wanted that's it right like if actually if i could leave on one point it'd be that product is not just a product on its own two feet it's how a product is perceived a potato can look like the most incredible royal dish in the world if you put guards next to it or it can look like a peasant's food if not like influencers do the exact same thing. I've always got a great example of miso soup in his book. Mm-hmm. He says, imagine if miso soup wasn't a thing and your daughter just went in the kitchen, age 10, put some stuff together and invented miso soup and you tried it. If you tried that miso soup, you would spit it, you would spit it out. You'd be like, don't ever go in the kitchen again. Don't make that. But if you know that miso soup is something that is enjoyed by entire cuisine, if you're in a Japanese restaurant where it's, you know, everybody's enjoying it and you're able to taste the subtleties of it, you'll enjoy it as well. So a product on its own two feet is not a product. Product is always how it's perceived. And I think that's something uh, yeah, we, that's vital. It's to funny. Remember. We can go on and on about this, like uh, Patagonia toothfish, like rebranding to Chilean sea bass. And now it's like a, a delicacy yeah. but if you look at a patagonia toothfish it's one of the ugliest fish and if you fish <laughs> for it and try to eat it it's disgusting like if you look <laughs> at it but everybody eats it at restaurants like because they renamed yeah. it to chilean siba but i want to leave the last like one minute or two minutes for you to say where people could find your podcast where people could find you and all that good stuff cheers daniel so yeah, i host nudge you can search for nudge wherever you listen to your podcast it's got a lovely orange logo if you spot that the full name is nudge marketing science simplified so go search for that you can go to nudgepodcast.com and listen to all the shows on there as well if you want to get in touch with me i'm on linkedin i'm phil phil with two l's that's my von restaurant effect distinct brand there phil agnew a-g-n-e-w and then i'm also on twitter as well p underscore agnew a-g-n-e-w um so you can follow me on all of those places that's amazing yeah give him a follow his podcast is one of the top podcasts out there for anybody to listen so thank you for spending time with me today and it's been a pleasure cheers daniel thank you